Okay, so um, we're going to take a look at the rest of chapter two tonight. And um, let's take a look at uh, verse 14 and following. And you'll have in your notes here um, an introduction. And I lost my picture of uh, our participants here. Hold on a second so I can see where you're at. There we go, that'll work. So uh, let's introduce this section, then we'll uh, read a part of it and, um, and work our way through the remainder of chapter two. This particular section of the book of James probably has some of the most uh, theological discussion uh, in the book, and you'll see why in a moment. This is the uh, part of James that really stresses the importance of good deeds, almost to the point where James seems to be saying that an individual is justified before God by deeds. And of course, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about justification by faith. So we'll, we'll work through that in a moment. But just by way of introducing this section, uh, the section insists that the presence of true faith uh, is, um, is evident to other people. And so James is almost saying that if you do not see the evidence of good works in a person's life, you might question whether their faith is valid. Um, I don't think he's claiming to say that um, an individual is lost in any respect. I don't think that's at the point here in the sense of losing salvation. I think, in fact, what we'll find is there is the assurance of salvation throughout the book of James, but he seems to be making a larger point, and uh, it's built upon the first 13 verses. And you'll remember from last week, the first 13 verses, he was using an example of two individuals that entered the synagogue. One is rich and the other is poor. And there was some discrimination that was going on in terms of where that individual was seated in the assembly. And so he kind of goes from there and he kind of fleshes it out a little bit more. Uh, the question I think that he is is uh, approaching here is, is it valid to say that an individual has a mature faith? Remember going all the way back to chapter one, I think maturity is kind of at the point of what he's getting at. Does a person have mature faith if it's not evident in some way? And so this seems to be kind of the question he's addressing. And in verses 14 through 26, He's going to kind of pick up that idea from chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, and he's going to distinguish between being a doer of the word and being a hearer only. So having said that, uh, we're going to begin in the uh, first paragraph. It's verses 14 through 17. So the, the way we're going to do it tonight is we're going to kind of break it down by paragraphs. I'm going to read it. We'll discuss it. Then we'll come to the next paragraph. Last week, I read the whole section, I think, and then we just kind of went from there. But let's just take shorter bites here. So in verse 14, it says, what good is it, my brothers, 
if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, to the reformers, um, this would cause some uh, theological dissidents in their mind. Martin Luther hated the book of James. He would have loved to just kind of rip it out of the canon. Uh, but I don't think that's necessary. I think James is trying to make an equally valid point. Um, it seems as though Paul approaches this topic of faith and works um, in perspective of the law. Do you have to keep the law in order to be justified by God. And he would say, uh, in other words, may it never be. And he talks about justification by faith. But James seems to be more practical. And he seems to be saying, anyone can claim to have faith. Do they have any proof? So having said that, in verses 14 through 17, James begins with an if clause. If someone says, or claims to have faith. And so this is built upon the premise that there's an individual that's kind of boasting about their faith, but there is no fruit, I guess, to show for their faith. And so he says, what good is it? He says that a couple of times, says it down in verse 16 as well, what good is it? And he says, if, here's the conditional clause, if a man claims to have faith, but he has no deeds. So it seems like James begins to frame the discussion uh, between a person's claim and the validity of that claim. So he uses an illustration and he's going to use several illustrations in this uh, chapter. And the first one is going to be an individual in need. And this doesn't have to do with an individual being discriminated in the synagogue. It really has to do with survival. Uh, it says here, suppose, verse 15, a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, well, what good is that? It doesn't help one bit to say, I'm praying for you. A, a lot of times that's what comes out when person has a real tangible need that re needs real help and even intervention um, to say, well, I'll be praying about that for you um, rather than I'll be praying about that for me to see what I'm supposed to do to help in this situation. So he begins to talking about uh, this brother or sister that has a lack of resources. And uh, he talks about this individual not taking to heart, I guess, the real need that is right before their eyes. And so they kind of fluff it off. They said, you know, um, I wish you well, keep warm, be well fed. And of course, the person that hears that is saying, well, where, where am I going to be warm? How am I going to be fed? In other words, if I wouldn't be in this situation, if I had those things, so um, he then pushes in verse 17, and he says here, 
if in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's dead. It's of no use. It's of little value, that type of thing. In other words, a person can't be warmed or fed with affirming words alone. Um, and it's not a bad thing to say, I'll be praying for an individual. It's not a bad thing to say, I'm thinking about you. It's not, those aren't bad things at all. But if that's all it is, it's kind of empty. It's valueless. It doesn't, doesn't help the individual that's in need. So do you have some thoughts there on that first paragraph? Now, what happens in verse 18, I think, is very interesting. In verses 18 and 19, he begins to talk a little bit about the misunderstanding of faith being an intellectual assent, and that's all it is. In other words, it's a bunch of facts, a bunch of knowledge that I believe I think is true. So he talks a little bit about this, and he actually brings up something that kind of jars us in verse 19. So let's read this paragraph. Verse 18 says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Now let's stop there for a second. Now James kind of sets up an imaginary dialogue with an imaginary individual. And What's fascinating is um, who is saying what here? Is it James that's saying something or is it this imaginary partner? So in verse 18, but someone will say, it seems to be the other person, you have faith, I have deeds. In other words, an individual is sometimes able to say, well, we all have different gifts and uh, you have a gift of faith or helps or works or service or whatever it may be. Uh, but I, you know, I have faith. Uh, I mean, you have the deeds, but I have faith. I have the ability to believe deep in, in my heart that this is true. But then he goes on and he says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God. Good, great, wonderful. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So he introduces this third party, this idea of demons, who can believe something intellectually, who might even affirm that great Shema statement from the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. So one of the central confessions of the Jewish people comes out of Deuteronomy 6.4, where it says, the Lord our God is one. And it appears as though James is alluding to that here. Um, and he says that, you know, there are people that can say the, that confession of faith that has been a long part of our tradition, maybe for centuries, but they don't do anything with it. I mean, they're just verbally reciting it. Um, so maybe a closer illustration in our situation might be the recitation of the Lord's Prayer. In other words, you can say it, you might know it by heart, but do you actually engage with what it's actually saying, um, that type of thing. So many times people mindlessly say the Lord's Prayer or something else that might be a part of a liturgy. And um, what James is saying, no, even the demons can do that. 
but demons don't have uh, faith that produces the type of deeds that's in alignment with the will of God. So you'll notice on your outline there, the reference to demons believing the confessional truth is to mark the difference between intellectual assent to monotheism and individual trust and faith in God. In other words, an individual can believe there's one God and there is no other gods. There's no pagan gods. There's no false gods. But that belief doesn't actually produce any difference in their life. So the point seems to be that to mouth the words uh, is something that a lot of people do, uh, but they never really take it to heart. They never really engage with it. They never contemplate what that mean, might mean in a practical way for their own life. So the demon uh, army here that is mentioned um, is interesting because verse 19 says, well, you believe in one God, good, even the demons believe that. Well, we can't really turn to cross-references to know what the demons believe and what they don't believe. So in many ways, this is kind of an intellectual uh, illustration that demons who have the capacity uh, to think and do, uh, they can think certain things, they can believe certain things, and maybe the best illustration of this is not necessarily a demon, but even Satan himself in the temptation of Christ. Uh, Satan himself quotes some scripture to Jesus uh, in the temptation narrative, uh, but, you know, does not, does not give allegiance to Almighty God. He uses and misuses the scripture to try to get Jesus to not trust God. And it seems to be that might be at the center of what this paragraph is getting at. There's no trust, there's no reliance, there's no allegiance uh, to God uh, in the demonic world. And is that possible on the human level? Well, that's probably true. Uh, there are people that might claim to be Christian. There are people that might claim they believe the tenets of Christianity, but they don't necessarily adhere to it, rely upon it, trust in it, um, you know, all those type of things that are important to our faith. Some thoughts there? Next paragraph. Now, this is where it gets interesting. So he moves from this imaginary brother or sister who's without clothes and food to this entity of the demonic world with which we don't know much about in terms of what their capacities are. And then we move to Abraham and Rahab. And in verses 20 through 25, it's fascinating that these two individuals are selected to be the next illustration in James' letter. So let's read it, verse 20 through 25. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, 
and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Now, verse 26 will be a summary of what has come before, so we'll stop right there for a moment. So he takes these two personalities from the Old Testament. Abraham, which most everyone would be familiar with that grew up in Judaism, this father of faith and this patriarch of this, um, this nation, and uh, he is considered righteous in God's eyes. Paul will make the point that he believed God, and it was considered righteousness. And what he means by that is God made a promise that he'd have a son in old age, and Abraham believed it. Uh, Abraham believed the um, promises of the Abrahamic covenant, which was given uh, three times in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, 17, and 19. And he believes it. Each time he's to do something with it, such as, um, you know, he leaves his father's house and he goes to a land where God is going to show him. He believes he's going to have a son. And yet at the same time, Sarah has some issues and he has a child with Hagar. Um, he then takes the sign of the covenant, uh, circumcision, as a way of ratifying the covenant. And um, he is an individual that kind of sets up this new nation that is going to live by these promises of God. So he's considered righteous. But you'll see, notice there in your notes, uh, dikaio is a word that can also be translated vindicated. So we often use the word uh, justice or justification kind of in, in a legal sense, uh, as if a verdict is, is pronounced by a judge and he's innocent or he's guilty or she's guilty. And... Um, there's a different way of using the same word. And it's possible here that James is talking more about Abraham's vindication of the faith that he displayed when he believed the promises of God. So what he's going to do, though, is he's going to pick out one incident. So now Isaac has been born. The promise has been fulfilled. Uh, his name represents how impossible that seems. His name means laughter. Um, and then in verse 21, it says, Well, not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Now that raises up some difficulties. Remember when we were talking in our extra Genesis study? We're talking a little bit about how could a parent do this? We talked a little bit about whether Abraham thought God wanted him to do this and God intervenes in the last moment. We talked a little bit about maybe God did insist on him proving or vindicating his faith uh, by coming down to the last second uh, before Isaac is going to be offered in sacrifice. So there's a number of ways of looking at this. 
it seems to me James is taking it in the way that Abraham was really going to go through with this. And it comes down to the last second and God intervenes with a ram in the thicket. And then Abraham uh, worships God because he had said prior, uh, son, God is going to provide the offering. So he had faith, but it is vindicated by these actions that came this close to taking the life of his son. And it seems to me that's the way James is kind of interpreting this particular episode in the life of Abraham. So, um, so he's going to use it as a way of vindicating uh, Abraham's faith and uh, showing that he is trusting God. Um, and, you know, his faith is that which pr is proven by his deed. And he's willing to go through with this if he needs to. Uh, we don't know if Abraham is thinking that uh, Isaac will be resurrected in order to continue the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. It seems as though, to me, if you read Romans chapter 4, that might be what was in Abraham's mind. Um, but what we find here, I think, is James seems to be saying that Abraham had faith prior to this incident. Um, but it is really this incident that's the defining moment. And it shows that his faith is not just intellectual assent. It's something that goes deep into his will and into his soul. So what are your thoughts about him pulling Abraham out of the scrolls of the Old Testament to, to use as a vindication for faith? Any, any thoughts on that? So whether or not Abraham needed to do that back in his day or not, this goes back to that extra Genesis lesson we had. That's kind of beside the point at this, at this stage. James believes that that's what proved his faith. So it's shown to be mature enough to trust God's promises in spite of contradictory information. You're asking me to do what? You're asking me to sacrifice this son that I've waited dozens of years for. So, all right, let's move ahead then. So I asked the question here, why Abraham? And James' choice here of Abraham is appropriate in light of James' interpretation of the event. So James insists here that Abraham kind of co-worked the work with God and his faith kind of brought a fulfillment to this test that God was putting him through. In other words, faith is the subject from beginning to end, but his deeds are not replacing his faith. They are completing it. Okay, so he's had faith. But it's the deeds that kind of completes the, um, the episode. So distinctive here, and I use those words intentionally, distinctive to James' treatment of Abraham is his designation of him 
that proves that he's a friend of God because he's willing to go through with something I think most parents would not go through with. Okay. So Abraham represents the person though that might goes back that this might go back to chapter one. Remember that James said early in the book that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So verse six of chapter one says um, that when you ask of something from God, uh, he you must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all that he does. So maybe what James is doing is dipping back into chapter one, and he's thinking about the double-minded individual and an individual that is single-minded or single-focused is able to trust God and follow through with what he believes God is asking him to do, and he doesn't rethink it or he doesn't double down and doubt about it um so he thinks that god is leading in a certain way and he acts accordingly so if abraham is a friend of god maybe the contrast that james is trying to give to us is he's not a friend of the world uh, a friend of the world would double down and doubt a friend of the world would double back and not follow through so maybe Abraham is chosen because of the closeness of the relationship that he has with God. He's called a friend of God. Maybe he's chosen because of this one incident kind of proving his follow through. And this one incident is an act of faith and trust and reliance upon God in ways that shows that his faith is genuine. He has some thoughts there. If not, then the second question is, why Rahab? So down in verse 25, he says, in the same way. So he's looking back to Abraham still. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Okay, now Rahab, she's mentioned twice in the New Testament. One is in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. She's mentioned here in James. And then there's a non-canonical writing of the ancient fathers called First Clement. And uh, in uh, chapter 12 of First Clement, uh, she is referred to as well. And um, Clement says that it's both her faith and her hospitality that saved her. Um, in these three cases, Clement, James, and Hebrews, Rahab is a paradigm of faith because she acted on behalf of the spies. So let's go back to Joshua chapter two for a moment. So here's where the story begins of Rahab long before she appears in the New Testament. And when you come to Joshua, in chapter 2, it tells this story of two spies that are sent out on reconnaissance by Joshua. Look at verse 1. It says here, 
Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the spy, uh, uh, excuse me, so the men set out on in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. When we have heard how, when we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And now she had said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you have let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother and your brothers and all your family into your house, if anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood is on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell us what we are doing, but if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And then it goes on and it, it, it talks about how they escape. And then when they come back in and invade the land, she is spared. Now, <clears throat> this particular story has a lot of problems in it. And the problems involve several things. One, she is a prostitute. Two, she is, she's betraying her own people in the process. Three, she is an individual that lies 
uh, to the king of Jericho. Four, we learn later she's a Canaanite. Uh, five, um, we, we see that she is an individual that does care for others, but it's only her immediate family. She sells out the rest of the city. So there's all kinds of problems with this story. And yet she is chosen as a paradigm of faith by James. So what we find here, I think, is James is kind of taking another Old Testament example of an individual that took a big risk. Um, and believe me, in theological circles, there's all kinds of discussion on whether she was justified uh, by her actions or not, whether her lying and uh, deceiving um, was a sin or not. And you can find this on the internet. And <coughs> you'll find people that will fall on both sides of this. Maybe the point of the story, though, is kind of a public relations story in the book of Joshua. She talks about how they all have heard of the Exodus. And this Exodus produced fear in everyone. Okay. So is this part of the buildup to the invasion? Is this part of the story that is told to encourage the troops? Because they're going into a land where, remember, uh, in the book of Numbers, 12 spies were sent out and 10 of them came back and said, they're too big, they're too strong, they're too powerful, and they have too many weapons. We're going to get killed. So I'm, these are just kind of seeds I'm throwing out. There's all kinds of things here to think about. Um, so she protects these two spies and she becomes exempt from the destruction that's coming. And if you flip over just for a second to chapter six, you'll see this is followed through in chapter six of Joshua in verse 17. Um, here's the story beginning in verse 12, where the ark of the Lord is taken up and the seven priests carry the trumpets and they march around and all those type of things. And then they invade the city. But verse 17 mentions Rahab. The city and all that is in it are devoted to the Lord. You know what that means? They're to be destroyed. They're not to be taken captive. That's technical language there. They're to be killed. Except only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies that we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. So they're not even to take any of the spoils uh, that are normal in warfare um, except the silver and gold and bronze and iron. So they leave everything else behind. It's devoted. It's to be destroyed. But isn't it fascinating what they keep? 
It says verse 19, the silver, the golden, articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. It's a way of underwriting the, uh, the um, at this point, it's the tabernacle. It's not the temple, but it's a treasure chest. So again, there's all kinds in my mind, questions of, well, isn't that convenient that they took what was most valuable, but they burned and killed everything else. Now, I do need to say to you, don't let this uh, upset you. There are scholars that suggest there's really no historical evidence that Israel ever destroyed Jericho. So there will be those that will say this too is part of the, the storyline of, of, of moving into this land that they believe God gave to them. Now, that's not that's not pertinent to our story in James, but just want you to know this story here has a lot of issues. Um, so let's think about this for a moment while we're still here in Joshua. Okay, it's a story of three people, two stupid pies, uh, spies and a convincing liar. Okay. So the spies come into the land. They're on a secret mission to gather military intelligence. And so what is the first thing that they do when they come into the city? They go to the local brothel. <laughs> Not too smart. Okay. They're outsiders. They're going to be noticed. And if you look at, go back to chapter two of Joshua, if you're notice, it takes it doesn't even take a day before the king knows about it. So verse two of chapter two of Joshua says, ah, the king of Jericho was told, hey, there's some outsiders that came in. They went straight to the brothel. Ah, they're here to spy out the land. <laughs> I mean, okay. Um, the action kind of turns on a dime, doesn't it? I mean, it's just that quick that they go, they're in jeopardy here because... They were stupid. They just, they went into the house of Rahab. Now, Rahab, man, she knows how to weave a good tale. So the rest of chapter two says, well, you know what? They were here, but they left. They went over the wall. They ran that way. You could possibly catch them if you head out that way. She hides them up on the roof. I mean, she's not, what is it? What? Would an ordinary, not ordinary, but normally, what would a person say if somebody came to Rahab's house and uh, asked, hey, have you seen these two spies? They probably would have said, haven't seen them. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, she weaves a tail, doesn't she? I mean, she really does. And um, so she has this capacity to lie very convincingly. And they take the bait. They all go out and they're chasing after a ghost. There's nobody out there that they're gonna find. So it's just a, a fascinating to me that James reaches into the historical narratives and pulls this example out, right? So, 
Let's go back to James chapter two. <laughs> and notice what he says down in this paragraph at the beginning of verse 25, in the same way as Abraham. So it's not like, hey, Rahab did a wonderful thing. She's not a great person. She's looked down upon. She's condemned by the Mosaic law. Uh, she puts him on equal footing with Abraham. That's, it, that's fascinating to me. And why? Because she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And he doesn't go beyond that, does he? But it's, a, it's another example or illustration of how whatever face she had, Evidently, evidently, she did know enough of the story of Israel that she knew about the Exodus. She knew about two kings that they took down. And she acted on that. And she asked that she be spared. So James' point here is she had faith. Wasn't a perfect faith. I don't know. Is she a righteous Canaanite? Um. Is she a Gentile convert? I don't think I'd go that far. But she, whatever faith she had, she acted on. And I think that's the point in the chapter. How about you? What say I think, you? I think you're giving her, you're underestimating her. Okay, how? I, I think I may be too simplistic here, but... I took her at face value. She heard about this. She believed in God. Mm -hmm. She had faith to act upon it, just like the people who hid the Jews during World War II had that faith. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, she is in the lineage of Christ. Yeah. She's what, David's grandmother or great-grandmother? Oh, yeah. You're going to ask me I'm, to dive back to the end to the genealogies? Not right now. It's, it's one of the two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, would we have done the same thing? Would we have stuck our neck out like that? Well, if we felt we were going to be killed, maybe we would feel that that is our only option. So, I, yeah, I mean, we might have. Yeah. I mean, if we had faith, if we believed this and she wanted, you know, she believed they, they were from God, why not? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think back then also, weren't brothels kind of also used as hotels? That I don't know. I've you never, could probably. I've, I've never heard you know, of that. You could probably be. <laughs> serviced in more ways than one at a brothel mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> thanks i'm glad you got that Beth. <laughs> well, I, it, I was, it was just an airbnb <laughs> yeah no right. an airbnb with benefits they didn't have airplanes Go ahead. Okay, Esty's uh, going to bring up a point. Go ahead. What about this thing? That's right. Why do they do that? 
for survival of their family. Yeah. Okay. So what she said is a contemporary example is some of the Afghanis that served as interpreters for the Americans, soldiers that were over there, put their life at risk uh, by being interpreters. Um, we see that many of them, you know, had the consequences after we pulled out. But um, however, um, why did they take that chance? Why did they take that risk? Obviously, they felt that um, their, their life or their family's life was in danger. Or maybe they felt that the, the cause of the United States in Afghanistan was a, a good cause or a righteous cause. And they were choosing on the right side, if, if I could put it that way. Uh, but they would have to, at times, lie and, and throw misdirection around. Uh, to Taliban that might have questioned them, you know, if they were in a particular situation. So that, I think that's a, a wonderful contemporary illustration of a very similar thing that we see here in Joshua chapter two. So, um, yeah, I, Shelley, I, your approach to the text is very genuine and it is spot on. I'm just thinking of the complexities of behind the text a little bit. So did Rahab have other friends in the city? Were there other prostitutes that were a part of her friendship circle? Did she betray them? Um, is she responsible for their death? Um, I'm just thinking this, this story has a lot of angles to it. And, um, and James doesn't get into any of that because I think what he wants to do, and here's my point for our study tonight, she acted upon what she believed. And so did Abraham. So I think that's the main point. Um, what we do with how it was carried out is something that we will probably all wrestle with in our own way. But I think it's good to, to wrestle with these things and to think about when a narrative gives us a story, there's a lot more to the story than the simple presentation that we find in the text and and so you know that might enhance a person's faith or it might cast doubt upon a person's faith depending upon what the story is um, but here James and the writer of Hebrews whoever that is um, would agree that her faith was vindicated that comes back to that choice of word her faith is vindicated by what she chose to do, whether we are completely comfortable with it or not. You see, there are certain theologians and Bible teachers that would say, well, she sinned, she shouldn't have lied. And I go in my mind, well, how is she going to protect the spies if she doesn't lie? Yeah. There's no way. I mean, so even her lying is an act of faith uh, that this is the way that God will protect these spies from being killed. 
Any thoughts? Yeah, and that does raise the, as he says, that raises the subject of situational ethics. And that is, are there times when it's more, it's more important to make the right choice, even if it is a violation of some command of somewhere, um, because it's serving a higher purpose. That that's a that's a difficult topic too. Worms. Yeah, that's a can of worms. You're right. Other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. So as he just said, so you can hear, she says, James is basically saying, put your money where your mouth is. In other words, you claim you have faith, prove it, show it. Thought, other thoughts before we look at this last verse in the chapter? Well, oh, before we get there, I thought you might find this interesting. Did you know there's three Rahabs in the scripture? Three Rahabs. One of them's a person. And... Um, Two, two other mentions are symbolic. So we've been talking about Rahab the prostitute and resident of Jericho. But a less familiar Rahab is an ancient sea monster, mythic sea monster, that God slays at creation. And that is told in Job 9, uh, 9, 13 and 26, 12 and Psalm 89, 10 and Isaiah 51, 9. There's this Loch Ness monster, <laughs> if you will, that's named Rahab that is mentioned in the scripture that I don't know what it's referring to. Rahab is slain, this sea monster at the time of creation uh, in these cross-references. Then Rahab is also used as a synonym for Egypt in Psalm 87, verse 4, and Isaiah 30, verse 7. Um, that's a little bit more challenging to figure out what the writer is doing when he equates Rahab with the nation of Egypt. Um, maybe what he is doing is combining these two thoughts, this mythic sea creatures defeated by Yahweh, and Egypt is defeated by Yahweh in the Exodus. So let's go ahead and call Egypt Rahab too. Um, that might be what's going on there. Now, the reason I give you this slide is so that if you come up against Matt Amodio in Jeopardy for Final Jeopardy, and the question is sea creatures, um, you'll know and be able, what is Rahab is the correct answer and you'll be able to win, okay? <laughs> <laughs> he is not Ursula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ursula. That's another good one, isn't it? Yeah. But anyways, so let's go to the last verse here. Well, I did have another slide before that last verse. It, this is a fascinating comment here in James as well. And um, he talks about scripture being fulfilled. Uh, I think that's an interesting comment that he's making here. Um, 
when he talks about this in uh, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's almost as if the actions of Abraham completes kind of a prophetic oracle of some sort um, that he, he fulfills what was anticipated to happen in, um, in the life uh, and promises of Abraham. So right here in the life of Abraham, you'll see the second point, Genesis 15 reveals his faith to trust in the promises of God. James then focuses on Genesis 22, which is not the first moment of trusting faith, but the moment where he acts upon what he believes. And it's just a fascinating turn of phrase here. And scripture was fulfilled. So in his mind, he takes this episode in, in the life of Abraham, and he says, here's, here's where it's projected as a promise, and here's where it's fulfilled. Um, any thoughts on that? Okay, so I've been promising you for two slides now. Verse 26, here it is. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So how do you tell the difference between someone who's sleeping and someone who is dead? Well, you look for their breathing. Well, Esty's taking her pulse. But another way is to look to see if they're breathing or not. So there have been times that our dog, Toby, has been in such deep, deep sleep. Esty said, is he still breathing? And then you'll see his little chest go like this. <laughs> yeah, he's okay. He's okay. Um, but uh, so it's interesting that spirit here can also be translated breath. And so let's, let's do this. As the body without the breath is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So um, this is not the Holy Spirit that's in this verse. It's the idea of the the spirit of breath that keeps us alive that keeps us breathing so um he kind of frames this last verse with the previous two stories um and i think he's just again showing that the validity of faith is seen not in what we say but by what we do that's kind of the main point of the second half of this chapter yeah. Um, so some thoughts there, any, any closing comments to the chapter? So James is, he is pretty direct, isn't he? I mean, he doesn't beat around the bush. He kind of goes straight at it and, uh, and he's challenging people who claim to have faith, prove it, prove it. And then he's given us examples, not only historical, but also imaginary. Imagine a brother, imagine a sister, uh, that type of thing. Other thoughts, comments, questions, concerns? So that brings us to this last topic. And that is the assurance of salvation. Is James saying here that if you can't prove your faith, by your works, 
maybe you're not saved. So maybe one way to think about this as we close our study tonight is assurance of salvation is different than eternal security. So those are kind of two different topics. Assurance of salvation has to do with my confidence that I'm right with God. Eternal security has to do with God keeping his promise that he gives to us in Christ. Uh, assurance of salvation is proved by our deeds, but is that saying that if it's not proved in some way, then there's a reason to cast doubt upon the genuineness of their faith. So let me give you an example. I run into this all the time when I, I sit with families to prepare a funeral. So one of the first things that comes out of the mouth of a family member is, oh, he's a Christian. And I said, I'll ask, oh, was he involved in a church? Did he serve in any capacity? Or, oh, no, 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 no. He, he wasn't into church. He didn't go to church. He, he didn't even like religion. He, none of that. But he was a Christian you know, that type of thing. So in other words, he could have been a scoundrel his whole life, but because he claims to be a Christian, or at least somebody puts that upon him that he trusted Christ, well, he's good, because that's always coming back to assurance of salvation. Where's my loved one? Are they with God? Are they in heaven? And that puts me in an awkward position because I'm not going to challenge them. That's not what you do when you're preparing a funeral. What you're doing is trying to comfort them in the midst of their grief. But it does raise a legitimate question about people that have no fruit. Is their salvation real? Is it genuine? Uh, have they been forgiven? Uh, that type of thing. Of course, what comes into all of this is... Um, a question that some Christians have, and that is if it was genuine, at least at one point in their life, but it's not evident now, did they lose their salvation or are they secure in God's promise? Um, I think God is always true to his promise, but, but it is a topic in some circles, in some church denominations that people are always concerned whether they're in or out with God. And that's why they walk the aisle 20 and 30 and 50 times in the course of their life, just to be sure that they're okay with God. So I think one of the questions is, do you, I mean, given, you know, John 3, 16 and a lot of other verses, do you equate deeds to works? Mm -hmm. I mean, can, I mean, in, in some sense, I mean, so, or not, I mean, are they, are they different? I mean, I, I think in some sense they're, they're the same in some ways. And, and God, is, is, God does say, you know, you come by faith, not by works. And if you, so unless there's some difference between the deeds that James is referring to and works, then, then, I, then, I, then I don't even, as, 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 important, as important as deeds are, you know, and works in some sense, to, from a standpoint of your Christian walk, it's by faith that your mm -hmm. salvation, you know, comes, not by... Yeah, works. but your faith produces 
good deeds. Yeah, but then that. you're still, it's still, it gets pretty fuzzy, I think. Well, I think what Bud is raising here is, okay, at what point does a deed become a work? Does it cross a line or something? And maybe that has to do with motivation, Bud. I don't know. Uh, maybe it has to do with individuals that are doing what they're doing because they believe they got to earn something from God. Whereas maybe what James is trying to get at here is the deeds are just coming naturally. These are people that live out a genuine faith and the deeds that they're doing, they're doing not because they're living in fear of God. They're doing it because they have a change of heart or they have a motivation of some sort to help. Because remember, that's how this whole chapter started. What do you do when you see a brother or sister who's hungry or don't have clothes? Well, if I go out tomorrow and, and buy an individual bag of groceries or shoes, why do I do that? Am I doing that because I'm trying to work for some type of standing before God? Or am I doing it because I'm trying to love my neighbors myself? I think that's how I distinguish it, maybe. Yeah, it's, but it gets, um, it can get, there's a lot of in between the boat um, in some sense. I mean, there is, because, oh. because human nature plays into it. And um, I mean, yeah, ideally it'd be wonderful if, if everybody did deeds and not works, but there's, there's a, there's a crossover there in some sense. You got um, that right, brother. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, that's why it's very complex at times do when you talk about these things to figure out what we're even what what we're even talking about just like yeah. this what is the de a difference between deeds or works Esty? oh now she uh just mentioned the verse in philippians where paul says work out your salvation in fear and in trembling well that that's a whole nother verse that can be kind of challenging. Um, that particular verse, is it talking about working towards something? Uh, is it talking about just living out your faith? Remember, this is a congregation in a Roman colony in Philippi, and they have to work out how they're going to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God within the citizen, uh, citizenship or the kingdom of Rome. So it, it might not be referring to salvation as much as keep working out this, uh, for lack of a better term, keep working out your discipleship. It's not easy. You got to keep working it out. And to see if, 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 yeah. if James, you know, basically suggests that if you don't do deeds, then you're not, you don't have salvation then it becomes almost a work, you know, a work, no. a, a, almost a work requirement, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a fine. I think he's saying that deeds will be the fruit of your salvation. Well, if, if, I think that's, that's a different, that's true. That's a different angle on it though. But I'm just saying, if that's the assumption that the deeds are, that if you don't have deeds, you're not saved, or you don't have salvation, then it equates in some sense, deeds to work that you have to work for your, you have to do something in the sense of a deed or a work, do something in order to be no, have no, salvation. I think the faith will produce deeds. Well, that's that that's true too. I, mean, I, I don't know. It's well, here's here's what will happen. Depending upon where 
certain denominations fall in their soteriology, which is a theology of salvation. They might stress this as you do this or you don't have salvation. I think the majority, though, uh, Bible teachers and scholars, they would just say that James and Paul are not in contradiction to each other. James is emphasizing how you know an individual has already been justified before. Right. So that's, I, how, that's how they get out of that. A yeah. Bit. But well, I, that makes more sense. Yeah. But I think. Go ahead. Well, I think a good way, a good example I have of showing this is as John progressed in his schizophrenia, mm -hmm. the one thing that that disease could not steal from him was his big heart. He was always helping people. I would take him to the grocery store and he'd go and he'd reach for things for people or he'd show them where something was. And, you know, if you needed something, he'd give you the shirt off his back. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that was part of his face coming out that way. Yeah, and... I you know, life is very complex. And here's a case in point where he had certain challenges, but his, he had a good heart. He had a mm -hmm. good heart and it mm -hmm. came out toward other people, even though he had other difficulties that, you know, let's face it, uh, we all would struggle with if, if we all had the same diagnosis or whatever. So, yeah. yeah. But that's a good illustration. That really is. Uh, uh, yeah, as she just said, you you will know them by their fruit, and mm -hmm. that's another verse that is often quoted. You know, um, and Jesus dramatically remember he cursed the the tree that didn't produce fruit. He, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's all kinds of angles to this type of thing, uh, but uh, yeah. So, anyways, um, James is just a fascinating contribution to the canonical uh, collection of books that we have. And he gets us to think and um, he kind of forces us to evaluate uh, what we do, obviously, and why we do it. So any other thoughts tonight? Writers of the New Testament is his brother, but I guess that's you know, fame playing favor. Oh, okay, <laughs> so what S <laughs> so what Essie just said is, I want to give James more credit than other writers of the New Testament because he <laughs> he's his half brother, and there's some favoritism going on there. <laughs> uh, that's a good one to close on, I guess. So uh, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll close uh, and uh, hope to see you all Sunday. Uh, we're getting everything lined up for not only our service, but our lunch together as well. So sound good? Okay. Yeah. See you Sunday. Yeah. All right. Sounds Sunday. good. All right. Good night. Good night. Welcome. Thank you.